Welcome to another episode of Injury is Not Equal. I'm your host, Shari Thompson Ritchie from the Center for Injury Prevention. It is a full house today as I am joined by Corey Friedman, Manager of Trauma Services at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, and our two guests, Dr. Barbara Haas and Dr. Stephanie Mason. Dr. Barbara Haas is a trauma surgeon and ICU physician at Sunnybrook. Her research program focuses on trauma and emergency surgery in older adults, as well as long-term outcomes after severe injury. Dr. Stephanie Mason is a burn and general surgeon and assistant professor of surgery at the University of Toronto. Dr. Mason's research interests include burn health services research and survivorship, with a particular focus on the impact of socioeconomic marginalization on injury outcomes. Marginalization, let's take a moment with that word. It's commonly used, however, I would like to take this opportunity to dig in a bit and define it within the context of this show. Marginalization is when an individual or group is put into a position of less power or isolation. Because of discrimination, stigma, Marginalization can have a large impact on health and well-being, making individuals much more vulnerable to injury. So when an individual is marginalized, they are unable to access the same services and resources as other people, and it becomes very difficult to have a voice in society. We may go even further as saying that those groups experience multiple social determinants concurrently. Therefore, the limited access to health resources increases their risk of poor health outcomes post-injury. The most marginalized are not immune to injury risk. Although on this show, we typically highlight the inequities that exist leading up to injury, this episode will explore how inequity is persistent and that even after the injury, particular individuals and groups are even further at risk and are significantly disadvantaged when it comes to long-term health outcomes and mortality. So let's begin. We are so excited to have both Dr. Mason and Dr. Haas on today's episode. Absolutely. Really looking forward to having both of these physicians on the podcast today. Uh, How about we begin with an overview of both of your studies? Let's begin with you, Dr. Mason. Sounds great. And thank you for having me. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about a study that we did looking at mortality after burn injury. And the reason why we did this study is because for a long time, it wasn't um, clear whether or not patients with major burn injuries would even be able to survive their hospitalization. And so the goal of a lot of the research and burn care was to get patients to the point of walking out of the hospital. And fortunately, over the last 20 years or so, uh, we've gotten a lot better at surgical critical care, and we've gotten a lot better at infectious diseases and our understanding of how a burn affects a person in terms of their physiology has gotten a lot better. And what that means is that more and more patients now are able to go home and live a life after burn injury, which wasn't always the case before. And so as that process has happened and as more and more of our severely injured patients have gone home who previously wouldn't have ever left the hospital, we've gotten more and more interested in how we can best help those patients with the long-term impacts of burn are on someone. And so we thought a good place to start was to look at how burn impacts your life expectancy or how many patients die after they initially survive their burn. And so we designed a study and we followed patients who had sustained a major burn injury, which means an injury uh, that involved more than 10% of their body being burned. 
And we followed them after their injury for up to five years to see what happened to them. And we wanted to understand not only what happened to the burn patients, but how that would be expected to compare with a group of patients who were similar in a lot of other ways, except that they hadn't gotten burned. And so what we did was we took uh, for every patient who we identified that had had a major burn injury, we actually matched them to up to five people from the general population who look like them in terms of their age, their sex, their physical health, what physical comorbidities they have, what mental health comorbidities they have. And then also we know that an important factor in health that I think we're going to talk a lot more about in this podcast is patients experiencing socioeconomic marginalization. And so we also matched on something called the marginalization index. And so basically we have a group of burn survivors and we have a group of people who look exactly like those burn survivors. The only difference being that they didn't sustain the injury. And we looked at how is the mortality different? And what we found was that at five years, the mortality among uh, the burn survivors was four times higher than among the patients who hadn't been burned. So showing a significant difference. And what that actually means is that on any given day during the follow-up, so every single day that we watch these patients after they left the hospital, their risk of dying compared to their similarly matched counterpart in the general population was four times higher on any given day. And that was interesting in and of itself, but what we found that was even more interesting was that um, the main thing that most patients died of in both groups was cancer and cardiovascular disease, which is consistent with what most people, those are the commonest causes of death in the general population. But the uh, individuals who had survived a burn injury had a tenfold higher risk of deaths related to mental illness and related to injury. So these patients who survived these terrible injuries actually went on to die by another injury. And that was something that was really interesting to us because it suggests that perhaps those uh, deaths could have been preventable and similar with the um, mental health deaths. So really suggesting an opportunity for intervention to improve the outcomes of these people who we work so hard to help them survive their injury. And then they die um, of these preventable causes. That's, that's uh, an incredible finding, and especially in the world of injury prevention, this is something that we, we have this model where we say that a lot of these uh, injuries are predictable, therefore preventable. So I can't wait till we get into that part of our, our, our episode where we can kind of look at those specific interventions that can possibly be made available to these patients so we can save lives. So let's actually dive into the second study Dr. Haas is going to share with us, and then we can um, get into some questions. Thanks very much. So the story that Dr. Mason told about uh, how burn care has changed is also true in trauma care. Um, you know, 20 years ago, uh, if you were severely injured, you made it out of hospital or 30 years ago, Ron would basically tell you, you should just be happy to be alive and you're going to be great and your life's going to be fine. Um, gotten very good at what we do. So if you are in a bad car crash or you're shot and you come to a place like Sunnybrook, uh, you have over a 90% chance of leaving hospital alive. But these are young people. Um, these are working age people. These are people, moms and dads, um, and they have a many years ahead of them. And, and in the past few years, we've really started asking, well, what actually happens? Do they live these great happy lives that we've promised them? And the answer is in many cases, no. Um, we've learned that patients who survive uh, bad injury, whether those are Dr. Mason's patients with the burns or my patients with other kinds of physical injuries, they have very high rates of mental health challenges. Many of them have permanent physical disability. And we've also learned that uh, many of our patients are never able to go back to the things that they did day to day before their injury happened. And of course, one of the main things is work. Work is really important to us, uh, puts food on our table, but it also for many of us is a really core way that we define ourselves and our place in society. So it's not just about money. It's also about that feeling that people have of being able to contribute and support their families. And we knew from prior data that many uh, injury survivors said they never got back to work, but we didn't really know what that meant. What did that mean for their day-to-day -day lives and who was likely to go back to work and who wasn't? So in our study, uh, what we did is we took uh, de-identified, meaning anonymized health data and linked it to anonymized tax data. So I can't we don't have anyone's names or addresses, but we were able to tell how much 
what was in people's income tax returns and what, what kind of health problems they had. And we found people that were working for two years and then had a bad injury and then lived for three more years after the injury. And similar to Dr. Mason's study, we matched them to people who were similar in every respect, except they didn't have an injury. So we matched them on age, uh, sex, uh, how much money they were earning before, were they in the union, where did they live, um, that sort of stuff. And so they were really making the same amount of money. Um, and then half of them had this injury and the other half didn't. And we looked to see what happened three years after. So three years after the injury, uh, those people who were in what we call the control group, who never had an injury, about 92% of them were still working. But only 79% uh, of the patients um, who had been injured were working. So there was a 12% difference in employment rates between those that were injured and those that weren't. And this translated into a big difference in earnings. Um, those that had been injured lost about 20% of their income compared to where they were pre-injury. And even those who went back to work um, weren't making as much money as before. Uh, they had lost about 11% of their earnings. So even those that looked like a big success on paper where they're back working were actually clearly not working full-time or the same jobs and putting as much money into their bank account as they were. And most importantly, those patients that were making the least amount of money before were the most affected. So people who were in a high income bracket before, they seemed to do better. More of them went back to work. Their income didn't take as big of a hit. But those patients that were um, financially disadvantaged before the injury, in fact, experienced the biggest loss relatively of earnings and were the most likely to be uh, unemployed and, and the amount of money, although maybe small, absolutely, was such a huge portion of their earnings that many would have ended up below the poverty line um, after their injury. So uh, this told us that there was a, a really long-lasting impact and that this impact wasn't felt equally um, by all of our patients, that patients who were vulnerable before were a lot more vulnerable after their injury as well. Well, thank you, Dr. Haas, uh, for sharing your study with us and giving us the overall results to that study. Um, it's very revealing to see that those that are um, economically dis disadvantaged, faced with a, a traumatic injury, their post-injury experience wouldn't automatically just be seamless without any challenges. So let's, let's get into the conversation around employment. And as you said, there was a significant difference in the income that was made compared to your control of participants. What factors are at play um, that is creating such a significant difference? And maybe you can share a little bit on what resources are present to kind of support uh, patients post-injuries. That's a great question. And, and I should add that this idea that uh, employment goes down after injury has been found in lots of different jurisdictions. So the Australians have reported this, the Americans have reported it. And the idea that people who were more marginalized were less likely to go back to work after has also been consistent. You know, what we added was to put a number to it and a dollar amount to it, but this isn't unique to Canada. I think a lot of the questions you're going to ask us, Dr. Mason and I will say, we're not hundred percent sure yet because this research is just starting to happen. You know, we're starting as a, a group of providers to acknowledge, hey, maybe everything isn't awesome for these patients when they leave and we need to focus on the months and the years, not just the days after injury. But to answer your question, I think there are two sort of aspects to why there are these discrepancies in employment and earnings. Um, some are related to the injury and some are related to social programs. So, uh, in Australian data, and I expect we would find the same in our data, people who are doing manual labor um, are less likely to have a high income. And obviously their labor is much more limited by a severe injury uh, than someone who's sitting at an office job and can do their job from home remotely. Um, so just the physical reality of injury uh, is very different depending on what kind of job you have. And I think that is a very important 
piece to it. I also think that people who had lower earnings before have more precarious jobs, right? So if you have this great high paying job, they're going to hold it for you uh, for the six to 12 months that you need to uh, rehabilitate and get better. If you were working day to day temporary jobs, they're not going to hold it for you. You won't have a job to go back to. And I think that that speaks to sort of employment policy around job stability, particularly for those who are most vulnerable. The last thing I would say is that while in Canada, everything that happens in a hospital is paid for, we know that not everything that people might need after a hospital is paid for. So everyone has some access to psychiatric care, but a lot of people have trouble finding a psychiatrist and have to go private. It's really tough to do if you don't have money. And it's tough to go back to a job if you're feeling depressed, right? Um, we, our patients have inpatient rehab paid for, which is wonderful. But obviously, you know, if you can pay for a private physio or a private occupational therapist or even a personal trainer to help you keep recovering after injury, you're going to get a lot further to your baseline than if you don't have access. And those things all take money. So I, we don't have the data to show this. And Dr. Mason and I are hoping to, to do this research in the coming years. But, you know, having money helps you get better faster to make more money. And vice versa. So I, I, I imagine patients with limited resources and precarious employment in a, in a labor um, intense job are very, are very precariously employed before and really have no way to get back to that work after. So well put, Dr. Haas. Dr. Mason, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I think the other thing that really ties into this, and these things are so interrelated, which makes it really interesting, but can also be sort of difficult to study and tease out exactly which impact is from which risk factor. But I think, you know, we also know that patients who are in more um, lower paying jobs or who have a little bit more tenuous relationship with their employer or maybe have just contract jobs day to day or work for an agency, um, you know, those patients also have high rates of socioeconomic marginalization. And we know that patients who are marginalized have worse health, health outcomes in general. And so it might be that for a lot of these patients, um, their health outcomes are such that they're impairing them from going back to work. And so one of the things that we're really interested in is trying to identify what the healthcare needs are of these patients so that we can best optimize them to make sure they're in the best place to go back to work, to make sure that they're able to contribute to work in the way that they want to. Um, and for a lot of these patients, especially the ones who were working before, and especially patients who are injured on the job, um, making sure that we're screening and not only screening, but treating things like post-traumatic stress disorder is really important to allow these patients to continue to go to their job. Like, you know, if they got injured on the job, that can be um, a very, very hard thing for a person to overcome, especially if they're not receiving help for how to overcome it. Um, if they're experiencing post-traumatic stress while they're at work. And even if they didn't get hurt on the job, they can still have experienced triggers at work. We know this, that make it very, very hard for them to function and be productive in the way that they were before their injury. And so I think there's a lot of um, interplay between marginalization, mental illness before and after the injury, physical health before and after injury that plays into all of the things that Dr. Haas found in her study and that the Australians found in their study um, and that we're increasingly understanding as we sort of look closer and closer at what actually happens to our patients after they leave the hospital. I would also add that there seems to be a general perception in the world, <laughs> can't quite put my finger on it, that people don't want to go back to work, that, uh, you know, they're so happy to sit at home on disability and how, you know, there's, they have it so great. Disability is great. Why would they ever bother? Um, and uh, that's just not true. Uh, first of all, living on disability is not easy. It's not like uh, people are sort of rolling around in diamonds when they're on disability pay. You know, again, people really value being able to work. It means something to people. It means something to their families. It means something to them. I see this particularly um, for our patients who are parents. Being able to work means something about providing for their children. That goes beyond a dollar amount. Most people would rather work and make less uh, than sit at home and make more. And the way that you know the insurance forms are set up, the way that they interact with their employers, 
particularly low income patients, it, the sort of hidden messages like, are you sure this patient person isn't just faking it? Right. Um, and, you know, most of the forms that I have to fill out for my patients and that I'm happy to fill out for my patients are sort of aimed at, you know, somebody sprained their ankle or like they have bad headaches, so they need a better desk. They're not really designed for these life altering, horrible injuries that Dr. Mason and I treat. And people can look fine from the outside. You know, they might walk into their employer's office and their employee might say, well, you've walked in here. Of course you can go back to work, but what they're experiencing internally, they're not ready. They have chronic pain. They, they are tired. Um, they can't keep up the work that they were before. And, you know, everything is set up to prove our patients to be liars who just want to sit at home when in fact, what they want is to go back to work gradually, to have support, to have modified hours. Um, and they really want to get back into the workforce. There's also something really neat that happens with some of our patients. I'm sure Dr. Haas has seen this. I've certainly seen it, that um, I have lots of patients who weren't working. They were on disability before they got injured and they were maybe maybe struggling with substance abuse or with mental health conditions. And through sustaining their injury, they actually achieve something that we now know is called post-traumatic growth, where the injury that they survive is just this um, functions as a reset button almost for their life, where they have a new gratitude for living and they actually want to develop new skills and they get linked up with services and start to feel like they have possibilities that they didn't think were possible for someone like them before. And I've found it very devastating if I can't take someone who is so motivated and really wants to find something to do. And if I, I, I find it very frustrating if I can't help that person find something that makes them feel fulfilled. It's very, very frustrating um, because we can get them through this injury. We get them to this point that they actually look at their injury as a good thing in their life rather than the worst thing that ever happened to them. Um, and yet, you know, they can't get a job. And for many of my patients, unfortunately, um, different perhaps to Dr. Haas's patients, they do look different on the outside. Um, and there's a, there's a physical discrimination that occurs um, as well that they have to overcome. Um, and so I think we, we underestimate people based on what they look like, whether that means we overestimate their abilities because they don't look injured or we underestimate their abilities because they do look injured. I'm so happy that you brought this up, Dr. Mason, around, I guess, as cliche as it is, judging a book by its cover and the different perspective that, that a lot of your patients take on when they are traumatically injured. And, and you did touch on, well, two things that I, I really came as a surprise was that whole growth mindset that the second time of being injured and surviving, that there's just an, a whole new perspective on one's life and what they are capable of doing. And you both are saying this, with the right supports, we can truly achieve something positive and, and it'll be a positive health outcome. Could you share a little bit more about some of the hospital supports and post-hospital care that patients can gain? I think you touched a little bit on like uh, some community resources, but could you share a little bit more specifically of resources that are accessible to your patients? And anyone can jump in. Well, that's a, that's a great question because it's a tough question. Um, I think Dr. Mason and I um, know that our interprofessional colleagues do a lot for our patients in hospitals. So specifically, these are our uh, physiotherapists and our occupational therapists um, who both tackle some of the physical uh, challenges that patients have, um, but in a slightly different way. Um, we also have great support from our social workers um, who basically any patient who is injured um, and admitted to our hospital will be seen by a social worker, by a physical physiotherapist or physical therapist, and very often by an occupational therapist as well. But what Dr. Mason and I, I don't want to speak for Dr. Mason, but we've talked about this many times. Um, you know, we need more of, of those people. Um, we need more physio, we need more occupational therapy, and we need more social work. Uh, these colleagues are such valued part of our team and we see them just run off their feet. Um, we also work very closely with uh, physiatrists, which are, are doctors who specialize in rehabilitation. Um, 
and uh, we're, we're happy to report that uh, they've become very integrated and important parts of our team. Um, and then of course, inpatient rehab, which is really a extension of um, what Dr. Mason and I do uh, in terms of less, less of us, more physiatry, more physical therapy, more occupational therapy um, is also critical, but um, they, we need more of that for our patients. We need more of that longitudinally. Um, and we really need um, to address sort of the whole, the whole patient and, and make sure that we can specifically uh, fulfill the needs that patients have about their employment and their health. And right now the system is not set up because the system still exists as it was created to sort of get people out of the hospital alive um, with the hope that everything was fine. And, and the fact that it's not fine um, is a new realization. And this is something you mentioned earlier, Dr. Haas. I think there's a common misconception, um, not just in Canada, but outside Canada, that Canada's healthcare system is free and, and all-encompassing. And despite the Healthcare Act of Canada, the Canada Health Act, having a principle of comprehensiveness, not all services are covered on that. Um, are you able to speak further in terms of what is and isn't covered post-discharge for patients and why that might be magnified for marginalized communities causing inequities as you've seen in your studies? I will take that question. Um, this is something I've spent a long time um, thinking about it. And actually, um, I was so interested in this when I was doing my PhD that I took a class on health law to better understand the Health Insurance Act and the loopholes that are multiple within it. Um, so I think um, one of the biggest gaps is that um, psychiatrists are allowed to privately bill patients. So for example, um, if a patient is covered under the health insurance plan and comes in with appendicitis, um, I'm not allowed to charge that patient to do their operation if they have health insurance. Um, but a psychiatrist is allowed to not accept the health insurance plan and to instead ask that patients pay privately. And um, that tends to be significantly more expensive than the um, OHIP would pay. Um, in other words, it pays more. The psychiatrist can earn more money billing privately than billing publicly. And we know that most of our patients uh, can't afford to pay for private therapy. And so unfortunately, they go without. Um, some patients who are injured at work are covered through um, work, workman's compensation. So those patients actually uh, can access private counseling and therapy that's paid for, so they get that benefit. But if you weren't injured at work and you can't afford it, then you can't pay out of pocket. It's not just psychiatrists. And you know, I think we're increasingly also recognizing that a psychiatrist might not be the best person to help patients with a lot of their therapy needs. Um, psychologists who generally are also not covered under OHIP um, can be very, very helpful with things like um, cognitive behavioral therapy and other therapies for PTSD that patients might need. So I think we have a ways to go in bridging that gap. Um, in terms of other types of therapy that are a little bit specific to burn patients, one of the major things that um, we know reduces risk of developing scar contractures, meaning um, patients who have burns can develop thick scars that limit motion across their joints. And you can imagine if your joints can't move, it's very hard for you to function in your everyday life. And it's even harder to go back to work, especially if your hands were burnt. Um, and we have something called compression garments, which are basically um, custom measured, specially designed to apply a particular level of pressure across a scar. And we recommend patients wear those garments for a year after their injury. And they have to be replaced usually every three months because they lose how tight they are. Those garments are not covered by OHEP and patients have to pay out of pocket. Um, and if the patients can't pay out of pocket, we usually recommend that they just go to Walmart or somewhere like that to buy the tightest bike shorts, for example, that they can find. But that's obviously not the same as having a custom uh, pressure garment. So that's just another example of where funds come into play. And I think there's a lot of things that are funded, but that we misunderstand why patients can't access those services. So, you know, Therapy might be covered on an outpatient basis, but how's the patient going to get themselves to that therapy? Can they afford to take time off work to go to it? Can they afford to take a taxi? 
Is it an hour by public transit? Do they feel safe to take public transit? Um, and I think those little pieces actually are responsible for a lot of the reason why patients don't access services that we think are covered and that they should be accessing. I think we we forget about those other things or perhaps, you know, do they have childcare to allow them to go to see the doctor? Do they have to take care of other people at home? Like, I think there's a lot of other factors that we tend to overlook. Another big factor um, in the trauma world is how disability insurance works. So um, if you were driving a car or you were hit by a car or there's a car anywhere in your story of injury, uh, you have access to a lot of disability insurance. Um, If you were injured because you were shot, um, that pool of money is much less. And of course, we know that people who have been injured by gun violence haven't done anything more to deserve being injured than people who are in a car crash. But I think society is indirectly telling them that their injuries somehow are more their problem than someone who was in a car crash. Um, And, you know, just to drive the point home that Dr. Mason said, we're very lucky at Sunnybrook because we do have great psychiatrists at Sunnybrook um, who are very supportive to our patients, who do not bill our patients, who see them under OHIP and who are doing an amazing job working with us, but they're run off their feet uh, because the demand for their services is so high um, that they're exhausted and, and, um, and can't meet the need um, because what they're doing uh, is, is hard um, and there aren't enough people doing what they're doing, which is seeing patients who, who need them. And the sort of things that fall through the crack, I've, I've had patients who we just couldn't figure out why they weren't taking their meds or why they weren't showing up for their appointments. Well, you know, it, it takes, uh, you know, if you look at people's addresses and you put them in Google Maps and their appointments at nine and public transportation by Google Maps is 90 minutes to get to Sunnybrook, you probably shouldn't give them an appointment at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, and if you prescribe the medication and they're not taking it, uh, the assumption should not be, well, why aren't you listening? But can you actually afford this? And the answer in many cases is no. So it's so complicated and and we doctors, all of us, whether it's psychiatrists, surgeons, all healthcare providers need to think about asking these questions, which we were not trained to ask when we were learning how to do our jobs. And so to that point, it really still sounds like despite being a, a so-called free healthcare in Canada, money still does play a big part. Um, can either of you speak to you know, professional experience you've had with a specific patient or it's been a patient you've worked with or or treated that's gotten lost in the system because of factors like this? Do you see and keep in contact with patients post-discharge for long periods of time? Great question, Corey. (laughs) Who wants to go first? (laughs) How much time do we have? Uh, You know, part of the reason Dr. Mason and I are very passionate about this is because the the studies we've presented to you guys are statistics, right? They're big numbers, thousands of people. But what really sticks with us is individuals. you know, there's one patient I've been following for over three years. Um, her injuries are long healed. Like there's no problem with her bones or her body, but the injury really unmasked some major mental health issues. And um, the interaction of her being scared to leave her house, her unstable housing, her lack of funds for medication, um, her not having a primary care doctor to coordinate these things, and all of the resources being offered to her being you know, very remote from where she lives has caused her to really fall through the cracks despite lots of efforts on my part and social work part and psychiatry. And, you know, just looking at her story, she's this very vibrant young woman. And um, and I, I can tell how she's feeling because when she comes to see me and she's doing well, her hair looks amazing. She, she makes her own wigs and she looks fab. Um, and then on days that are not easy for her, you can tell that she hasn't she hasn't had the energy to do that and and to see her go through these ups and downs and to see her fall through the cracks is so tragic and frustrating and i i often think about her and i say if i can't help her like what is the point of everything that i do um you know in another case i had a a lady who had a really she's not working she's retired but um her husband was working before she was struck by a car and i've been following her also for about three years. And the things that she wants to make her life a little better are so trivial. Um, there's, she has a, a very detailed hobby um, and uh, she 
she wants to do that hobby and it's it was set up in her basement and so they wanted a stair lift so that she could go down to her basement and do her hobby and it was a fight uh to to get that organized with her insurance and she has excellent insurance and she's fortunate in many ways and it's just you know that translation from numbers to people is i think what fuels what we do because these are so unnecessary um and help no one now her husband's had to retire to to take care of her um none of that had to happen i think dr house brings up a good point there too that you know that patient's husband had to retire i think the people who probably carry a lot of the burden of post-injury outcomes is the caregivers for a patient. And I think we place huge assumptions on the fact um, that patients are going to have someone to help them with the things um, that we ask of them when they go home. Um, you know, for my patients, it's, it's um, dressing changes. It's uh, therapy. It's rides to all of the different places. It's, you know, for a lot of my patients, they're terrified to turn on the stove because they got burned. And we don't think about that. They're terrified to go make dinner. And if they don't have someone to make it for them, they're, you know, eating processed, pr prepared food that they can heat up in the microwave, if that. Um, and these are patients who get severely malnourished during the course of their injury already. And, um, you know, it's simple things that often, I think we just assume that someone has someone to help them with that. And not a lot of people, that's not true for everyone. And also, you know, the cultural perceptions around injury and what injury recovery looks like are different. And I think that's another thing that we're learning more and more about is how diverse our patients are and how the way they perceive what a good recovery is or the way that they perceive they should recover is different and it's not always the same. Um, my definition of a good recovery is not always what a patient perceives to be a good recovery. And, um, you know, a lot of patients might put a lot of um, importance on their caregivers doing things for them that I want them to do for themselves. But it's, you know, we have to try and find a balance between respecting their wishes um, and their culture in terms of the importance of family members helping with recovery if they're available and me wanting patients to do things for themselves so that they can regain their functional independence. So there can be a little bit of tension there too. Thank you, Dr. Mason, for elaborating on that. And uh, Dr. Haas, for sharing those stories about your patient's experience post-injury. You know, it's very eye-opening, and I'm just thinking about the many different factors that tr can truly be a hurdle for patients when it comes to post-checkups or treatments. I would like to circle back to that point about treating the whole patients. You've done all this work to physically treat the patient, and although there are mental health resources that are immediately made available for your patients that are treated at the hospital, you've come to this point of discharge, and then you witness this downward motion. Um, when it comes to your patient's mental well-being and access to further care and their ability to even navigate the system to obtain this care. And I'm wondering, like, is there, uh, this is a two-part question. So uh, where does our trauma-informed care processes and approach come into play? Uh, is it even uh, a forward-moving option in one's practice? And if not, is there some type of training that could be required to other healthcare professionals so that um, there are, there is like a continuum when it comes to quality of care when treating the whole patient so that we are able to identify these various inequities and challenges, um, that some patients face, especially if we need, if we see a need to address the systematic failures when it comes to caring for marginalized patients post-injury. Okay, folks, let's back up a little bit. So what is trauma-informed care? Well, trauma-informed care is an approach that comes from an understanding that every person we come into contact with has probably experienced some level of trauma. We need to interact with individuals on a level that demonstrates compassion in every connection or action to reduce the risk of re-traumatization. All right, let's get back into the discussion. 
You know, the first point that I would make is that it's not necessarily that we need to train people to do this, but actually that we need to have the people to do this in the first place. And so, you know, for example, one of the things that's written in probably all of our patients discharge summaries is follow up with your family doctor about your high blood pressure that we diagnosed while you were here. Follow up with your family doctor about your diabetes that we recognized was worse while you were here and you may need to go on medication for that. Or we started you on a new medication for this, follow up with your family doctor. But what's missing for a lot of our patients, their injury is the first time they've been admitted to the hospital and interacted with the healthcare system in any way for a long time. So I think, you know, we need to make sure before we, I think there can be a tendency to want to increase the amount of training that the individuals already, that already exists in the system have to help take care of these patients. But I think we need to make sure that we have enough individuals to meet the basic needs of the patients first. In other words, their primary care needs, you know, are they, have they been seen for a colonoscopy according to guidelines? Have they had a mammogram? Have they ever had their blood sugar checked? Um, simple preventive healthcare measures that we know are really important to long-term longevity, um, but that we know are missing from a lot of patients who experience marginalization. And a lot, that means a lot of our patients. I would say though, that uh, we also need to learn to ask the right questions um, so that we can identify who needs those services. Um, you know, a lot of our patients have, as Dr. Mason pointed out, follow up with your family doctor on their discharge summary well, it needs to be part of our training that someone needs to actually click the button just above and to the right and see if that patient has a family doctor. I'm, I'm describing our electronic medical record system. Um, we also need to sort of change our perception around what how people come to be injured. And that's where the, sort of the trauma-informed approach comes. You know, uh, especially on our trauma service, we have a lot of uh, resident doctors and, and students and um, there's often this sort of aura of like, oh, the, these exciting, these exciting uh, injuries come in and I'm going to see exciting procedures. But, you know, I, and as I think this whole podcast speaks to, people don't show up at the hospital with injuries randomly. Their whole life story um, has led them into a situation where they became injured. They didn't choose to have that life story and they didn't choose to be injured in that way. Um, and, you know, this really comes through when you meet their moms and dads, right? I have a little boy, I see these moms and dads and you can tell like this was not the plan for their son or their daughter um, when they were little. And I, that really drives it home that, you know, what was the story here? What opportunities did this person have or not have that brought them here? And how are those opportunities or lack thereof going to inform what happens after we discharge them? So it is a little bit of a, a question of asking the right questions. You know, a, a Corey and I were uh, just emailing with uh, one of our colleagues uh, from the injury prevention office today, where we're starting to look to systematically ask about these things. Um, do you have stable housing? Are you worried about your about putting food on the table? Um, do you live in an abusive situation or are you worried about being injured by someone else if you return home? Um, you know, these are obvious questions, but we haven't been trained to ask them. And my point is you can never come into a hospital injured and not have your blood pressure checked and not have someone check your temperature. Like that is not how we practice medicine. So if we're saying, and I think everyone listening to this podcast probably agrees, you know, social determinants of health determine outcomes. We've known that for years. It's like, okay, well, why aren't we measuring them like blood pressure? If, if whether this patient does well or not is based on their, their experience and their prior marginalization and their prior opportunities, why is that not as important to us to record as their blood pressure? And until we do that, we can't solve this problem. You know, those of us watching the COVID story unroll in Ontario, you know, everyone has suddenly discovered that if you live in a marginalized neighborhood, you're less likely to get a vaccine. And those of us who, uh, everyone on this call who works in injury is sort of sob laughing at that because that's true of everything in healthcare. Um, and, and living in those neighborhoods also puts you at, at risk for having the problem in the first place. So, you know, I think the time of saying injury is driven by social determinants of health and so is recovery is, is over. And now we have to figure out how do we measure it? Um, and how do we change the narrative? Because 
right now we know there's a problem, but we we're sort of hoping it'll get better with sort of patchwork issues and, and it needs to be addressed at the system level with primary care, with preventative care, with funding the right people and addressing and identifying these inequity issues when the patients come in. So let's just say that you've identified that this patient does not have a family doctor. Uh, do we have the resources to provide them with ones? You know, there's one thing to ask the question, you know, do you have someone that can drive you home after this procedure? And if they do not, I know this is simply put, but then what? You're what preaching to the choir. Uh, Dr. It, Mason and I are going to need profound therapy after this podcast. Um, we, so I'll tell you, I'll, I have two things to say. So number one, um, I, you know, I think identifying a problem and then not having a way to solve it is, of course, always disappointing, but you can't start to solve it until you know it's there. You know, when our patients have chronic pain, I can't always make it go away. But if I don't ask them if they're having pain, I can't even think about prescribing medication. We're starting, thanks to, to you and the Injury um, Prevention Office, we are really learning about a vast amount of community resources that we as physicians haven't been trained to know about or engage with. And those are a really good start. Um, unfortunately, right now, it still requires very hands-on intervention. So I'll email, you know, a community health center in a specific neighborhood and I'm able to, to hook people up. I've even, uh, you know, looked for family doctors on like social, on closed social media groups and saying, I have patients or any family doctors in this neighborhood. I'm obviously not identifying the patient, but are there doctors in this neighborhood who are taking patients? Because I will send them to you. Um, on a broader level, I think we need to do more research in this area to really nail down what the problem is. Um, and maybe I'll let Dr. Mason talk about the project that we are currently putting together to help address some of these issues from a, a less, uh, less scattered way and more of a, a, a programmatic way. Sure. So, you know, a lot of the work that Dr. Haas has done and that I've done um, is using these big administrative databases that we have in Ontario. Um, which allow us to, in a de-identified way, meaning we don't know who the patients are that we're following, but we can identify patients and follow their healthcare interactions over a given period of time. And so what we want to do is try and systematically capture some of these things that we've been talking about. So we want to look at patients who have been discharged after surviving a severe injury, follow them over time and see what their primary care interactions look like. What do their interactions with the healthcare system look like? Are they using the emergency department more than other patients? Um, are they seeing a family doctor? If they are seeing a family doctor, is it the same one each time? Do they actually have a family doctor that they have a longitudinal relationship with? Or are they just going to walk in clinics on an ad hoc basis when they need to? Um, maybe they don't have a family doctor, so they're using the emergency department as their family doctor for lack of a better option. And so um, we're hoping to get this study going shortly um, to give us some concrete answers. You know, we've talked a lot about the individual stories, but it's also important to gather on a population level data because that's what we use to um, identify the need, which I think, you know, we've identified the need in our own practices already, but to identify that that's a need on a greater scale, to define it, to quantify it, and then to use that data to advocate on behalf of our patients to the hospital, to the government, um, for the services that might be required. And you know, we have a hypothesis that I think we'll be able to prove that it's probably a lot more cost effective for the government to provide someone with access to primary care than to provide them with access to the emergency department or to um, treat the conditions that they have that might have been preventable um, with access to primary care, but instead require hospitalizations for optimization and things like that. So there's almost certainly a cost effectiveness argument to be made. You're jumping ahead to where we kind of usually end podcasts off, which is the call to action. Um, you know, reviewing one of the studies we, were, we read in preparation of this podcast mentioned that cyclists have better early recovery. You know, is the answer to buy everyone that comes through the trauma and burn program a bicycle? I don't think so. But what is the actual you know, call to action from your perspectives that we as a hospital, as a system, as a country, as a society um, can be looking to do? So I would say as individuals, and I think my residents and medical students have been really tired of hearing me talk about this. 
Um, and part of the reason I talk about this a lot is because I've done a lot of learning myself. Like I have not always gotten this right. You know, some of the patients that have fallen through the cracks, I, I see as, you know, this is where I didn't do it right. Um, and I think that's important to acknowledge, like I'm learning how to do this. I'm learning from my patients, my colleagues, and I get it wrong a lot of the time, but on an individual level, we have to change the way that we talk about injury. You know, it's not like this exciting story to tell. Um, it's patients' lives. And we are, you know, whether patients do well in the years to come starts in the trauma bay, starts with how we treat them from the moment they roll into the hospital. And we need to know more about our patients, um, not because we want to have, you know, chit chats with them about what TV shows they watch, although I quite enjoy those of my patients that watch Coronation Street. But we need to know what job do you do? Can you still do it? What's going to happen to you? What are you worried about leaving? And, and, and this is, these are health questions. These are not, you know, social questions. These are health questions that we have to integrate as healthcare providers on a system level. We have to, and, you know, and, and, and we talk about this in every realm of health, you know, preventative care is always cheaper than, uh, you know, band-aid care. So what does preventative healthcare look like in trauma and in burns? It's um, ensuring people make a good physical and emotional recovery and can go back to the lives they had um, and that they don't enter this spiral of ill health, unemployment, and further marginalization, which will only cost um, the healthcare system money and cause unmeasurable and unnecessary suffering for patients and their families. So we have an individual role, but I also think we have a role as advocates. I think, you know, if I could summarize the way I think about this and, and the way that I think we need to shift thinking about this is that injury is not a one-time event in a person's life. Injury is a chronic disease. It has a number of known risk factors and it has a number of known sequelae. And we need to start thinking about it as something that will affect someone is an injured patient for the rest of their life. And there's going to be physical and mental health consequences and social consequences that come with it. And we need to be more prepared to address that in the long term, instead of thinking about it as an episodic uh, event, um, or in terms of thinking about it as just one episode of care that's discreet and has a start and an end. Thank you so much for those final thoughts. I am sure you have left our listeners reflecting on the world around them and their own personal hand in the cycle of inequity. I know you've done that for me. Uh, I hope we all can take these gems and think about what actions we can do for the better in our professional roles and even our own personal lives to support those in need. I do wanna take this time out just to thank you all again for joining. This episode of Injury Is Not Equal. Thank you, Dr. Mason. Thank you, Dr. Haas. Thank you, Corey, for lending this time to explore this very important topic of post-injury and marginalization. We hope you've enjoyed this season of Injury Is Not Equal. Tons of gratitude goes out to our listeners and our future listeners. Until next time, be well, folks. <laughs>